Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. This episode serves as part two of the outro to episode 60, my interview with Tolan LaJoy. In that conversation, Tolan and I discuss the polarization of the American public. In this outro, I dive further into this division and argue that our current political split is not one of Republican versus Democrat, but rather one of globalism versus self-governance. Part one of the outro began by defining the globalist threat and how the globalists have infiltrated American media through the CIA. I first highlighted the mainstream media oligopoly, the six media conglomerates which control 90% plus of the film, television, and print content distributed. I next highlighted the role elitist organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations have played in the destruction of our free press. Next, I highlighted BlackRock, its CEO Larry Fink, and the role played by the asset management cartel in consolidating power for the globalists. I then discussed Operation Mockingbird, a CIA program to infiltrate the media, which was declassified during the 1970s Church Committee hearings, and which continues to this day. I highlighted the ongoing lies perpetuated by the mainstream media with the case study of ivermectin, the miracle drug labeled a horse dewormer by the Mockingbird media during the pandemic. I then provided evidence that Anderson Cooper is acting as an agent of the CIA, with investigative journalism from Luke Rudkowski of We Are Change and testimony from German reporter Udo Afkulte. I then discussed the role the CIA has played in Silicon Valley since its infancy, diving into specific examples of the big tech oligopoly's corruption. First, I discussed Microsoft and its founders slash robber barons, Bill Gates and Paul Allen. I then highlighted Reid Hoffman, LinkedIn, and the elitist organization, Bilderberg Group. Part one of the outro concluded as uh, we considered DARPA, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and the disturbing prevalence of child sexual abuse material on Meta's platforms. This part two, episode 62, begins with a discussion of the PayPal Mafia, Palantir, and its founders, Peter Thiel and Alex Karp. I then highlight the corruption and censorship rampant at Google and supported by its founders slash executives, Sergey Brin, Larry Page, and Eric Schmidt. I then discuss the Jeffrey Epstein-funded Edge Foundation and the evidence the Edge annual billionaires dinners were used by Epstein as an influence slash blackmail operation to extend his human trafficking network into Silicon Valley. The discussion on Silicon Valley and the CIA wraps as I highlight Twitter slash X, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, and Disney. This outro ends with an appeal to Kshatriya, the spirit of the cosmic warrior. PayPal, Palantir, Peter Thiel, and Alex Karp. Peter Thiel, one of Silicon Valley's most idolized elites, co-founded PayPal in 1998. Thiel and many of his PayPal colleagues, including Reid Hoffman, subsequently became known as the PayPal Mafia. As Thiel describes in his book, Zero to One, the first team that I built has become known in Silicon Valley as the PayPal Mafia because so many of my former colleagues have gone on to help each other start and invest in successful tech companies. We sold PayPal to eBay for $1.5 billion in 2002. Since then, Elon Musk has founded SpaceX and co-founded Tesla Motors. Reid Hoffman co-founded LinkedIn. Steve Chen, Chad Hurley, and Joed Karim founded together YouTube. Jeremy Stoppelman and Russell Simmons founded Yelp. David Sachs co-founded Yammer. And I co-founded Palantir. Today, all seven of those companies are worth more than $1 billion each. Perhaps these mafiosos hit Silicon Valley at the perfect time, using their exit proceeds to start game-changing tech companies. 
Through their entrepreneurial spirit, hard work, and product market fit, they lived the American dream to all start billion dollar plus companies. Or perhaps there were more sinister forces working behind the scenes to ensure at least some of these men's success. After selling PayPal to eBay, Peter Thiel pocketed approximately $100 million. He co-founded the company Palantir alongside Alex Karp, which happens to be the one most likely to threaten American citizens with a permanent surveillance state. Here is investigative journalist Whitney Webb, as read by Grace Noble in her book One Nation Under Blackmail, how the sordid ties of intelligence and organized crime led to Jeffrey Epstein. Chapter 21. From Promise to Palantir. The Future of Blackmail. Promise, Palantir, and Pre-Crime. In general terms, Palantir was created to be the privatized panopticon of the national security state, the newest rebranding of the big data approach of intelligence agencies to surveilling both foreign and domestic populations. The latter, in particular, has long been a key objective of U.S. intelligence, having been pioneered by the CIA as far back as the Vietnam War. It was later covertly turned against the bulk of the U.S. population by both U.S. and Israel intelligence during the Iran-Contra and Promise software scandals of the 1980s, though efforts to use these big data approaches to target domestic protests and specific social movements had been ongoing for years. The Panopticon was originally an English philosopher's concept for a new, revolutionary prison design. But the idea was more fully developed by the French philosopher Michael Foucault. Foucault, in his book Discipline and Punish, noted that the major effect of the panopticon is to induce in the inmate a state of consciousness and permanent visibility that assures the automatic functioning of power. Said differently, the uncertainty that one may be under surveillance at any time and for any reason induces obedience in that individual allowing a small number of people to control the masses. It is perhaps unsurprising that, for a 2020 profile on Palantir in the New York Times, the company's co-founder and CEO, Alex Karp, chose to pose with three Palantir employees under a large portrait of Foucault. In an attempt to build on two post-9-11 objectives simultaneously, the U.S. national security state attempted to institute a public-private surveillance program so invasive that Congress defunded it just months after its creation due to its concerns that it would completely eliminate the right to privacy in the U.S. Called Total Information Awareness, TIA, the program sought to develop an all-seeing surveillance apparatus managed by the Pentagon's DARPA. The official agreement was that invasive surveillance of the entire U.S. population was necessary to prevent terrorist attacks, bioterrorism events, and even naturally occurring disease outbreaks before they could take place. The architect of TIA, and the man who led it during its relatively brief existence, was John Poindexter, best known for being Reagan's national security advisor during Iran-Contra and being convicted of five felonies in relation to that scandal. Poindexter, during the Iran-Contra hearings, had famously claimed that it was his duty to withhold information from Congress. 
One of Poindexter's key allies at the time as it related to TIA was the chief information officer of the CIA, Alan Wade. Wade met with Poindexter in relation to TIA numerous times and managed the participation of not just the CIA, but all U.S. intelligence agencies that had signed on to add their data as nodes to TIA in exchange for gaining access to its tools. The TIA program, despite the best efforts of Poindexter and his allies such as Wade, was eventually forced to shut down after considerable criticism and public outrage. For instance, the American Civil Liberties Union claimed that the surveillance effort would kill privacy in America because every aspect of our lives would be catalogued, while several mainstream media outlets warned that TIA was fighting terror by terrifying U.S. citizens. Though the program was defunded, it later emerged that TIA was never actually shut down, with its various programs having been covertly divided among the web of military and intelligence agencies that make up the U.S. national security state. While some of those TIA programs went underground, the core Panopticon software that TIA had hoped to wield began to be developed by the very company now known as Palantir, with considerable help from the CIA and Alan Wade, as well as Poindexter. At the time it was formally launched in February 2003, the TIA program was immediately controversial leading it to change its name in May 2003 to Terrorism Information Awareness in an apparent attempt to sound less like an all-encompassing domestic surveillance system and more like a tool specifically aimed at terrorists. Nevertheless, the TIA program was shuttered by the end of 2003. The same month as the TIA name change and amid the growing backlash against the program, Peter Thiel incorporated Palantir. Thiel, however, had begun creating the software behind Palantir months in advance, though he claims he can't recall exactly when. Thiel, Karp, and other Palantir co-founders claimed for years that the company had been founded in 2004, despite the paperwork of Palantir's incorporation by Thiel directly contradicting this claim. Also, in 2003, Apparently soon after Thiel formally created Palantir, none other than Richard Pearl called Poindexter, saying that he wanted to introduce the architect of TIA to two Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, Peter Thiel and Alex Karp. According to a report in New York Magazine, Poindexter was told by Pearl that he was precisely the person who Thiel and Karp wanted to meet mainly because their new company was similar in ambition to what Poindexter had tried to create at the Pentagon, that is, TIA. During that meeting, Thiel and Karp sought to pick the brain of the man now widely viewed as the godfather of modern surveillance. Pearl's roles at Hollinger International, ties to Israeli espionage scandals and his lobbying on behalf of Bernard Schwartz's Laurel, were discussed in chapters 14 and 17. Soon after its incorporation, though the exact timing and details of the investment remain hidden from the public, the CIA's InQtel became Palantir's first backer, aside from Thiel himself, who invested an estimated $2 million in the company. InQtel's stake in Palantir would not be publicly reported until mid-2006. 
Though the influx of cash was certainly useful, Palantir's CEO Alex Karp later told the New York Times that the real value of the InQtel investment was that it gave Palantir access to the CIA analysts who were its intended clients. A key figure in the making of InQtel investments during this period, including Palantir, was the CIA's chief information officer at the time, Alan Wade. After the InQtel investment, the CIA would be Palantir's only client until 2008. During that period, Palantir's two top engineers, Aki Jane and Stephen Cohen, traveled to CIA headquarters at Langley, Virginia every two weeks. Jane recalls making at least 200 trips to CIA headquarters between 2005 and 2009. During those regular visits, CIA analysts would test Palantir's software out and offer feedback, and then Cohen and Jane would fly back to California to tweak it. As with InQtel's decision to invest in Palantir, the CIA's chief information officer at the time, Alan Wade, played a key role in many of these meetings and subsequently in the tweaking of Palantir's products. It should come as no surprise, then, that there was a clear overlap between Palantir's products and the vision that Wade and Poindexter had held for the failed TIA program. The benefits in repurposing the public-private TIA into a completely private entity after TIA was publicly dismantled are obvious. For instance, given that Palantir is a private company as opposed to a government program, the way its software is used by its government and corporate clients benefits from plausible deniability and frees Palantir from constraints that would be present if it were instead a project tied to a military or public sector. Teal is a man obsessed with immortality who is excited at the prospect of parabiosis, the process of transfusing young blood into one's veins as an anti-aging panacea. There are widespread rumors in Silicon Valley where life extension science is a popular obsession that various wealthy individuals from the tech world have already begun practicing parabiosis, spending tens of thousands of dollars for the procedures in young person blood and repeating the exercise several times a year. Coincidentally, Teal met with Jeffrey Epstein several times in 2014 at a time when Teal also sat on Facebook's board. Coincidentally, both Teal and Carp are on the steering committee of the Bilderberg Group the leadership team that organized the annual gathering of these elite oligarchs. Teal and Karp are joined on the steering committee alongside men and women like President of the World Economic Forum, Borger Brende, CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, Editor-in-Chief of The Economist, Zanny Minton Beddoes, Editor-in-Chief of Bloomberg LP, John Micklethwaite, President of Warner Brothers Discovery International, Gerhard Zeiler, Former CEO and Chairman of Google, Eric Schmidt, and Democratic Election Denier, Stacey Abrams. By the way, what is the origin of the name Palantir? Any of my fellow Lord of the Rings fans slash nerds may remember the Stark device used by the dark wizard Saruman to communicate with Sauron. The power of Isengard is at your command, Sauron, Lord of the Earth. Oscars, Oriak, build me a now, if I were hypothetically a sociopathic douchebag looking to create a permanent police state, 
a police state involving a panopticon prison of surveillance information that feeds directly into Dark Lord Sauron's all-seeing eye, metaphorically the intelligence agencies in the national security state. I very well may choose to name this company Palantir as an on-the-nose reference to my malicious intent. What do we say to dark wizards like Peter Thiel and Alex Karp, interested in living forever while they enslave the rest of humanity? And that's exactly what we should tell the oligarchs running the company with perhaps more influence on the flow of information than any other. Google. Google, Sergey Brin, Larry Page, and Eric Schmidt. Google was founded in 1998 by Stanford students Sergey Brin and Larry Page. Over the subsequent 25 years, Google has grown to become the most used web-based search engine in the world. Brin and Page were also part of a computer science research team at Stanford University that received funding from Massive Digital Data Systems, MDDS, a program managed for the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency by large intelligence and military contractors. According to Jeff Nesbitt of Quartz, quote, the intelligence community hoped that the nation's leading computer scientists could take non-classified information and user data, combine it with what would become known as the Internet, and begin to create a for-profit commercial enterprises to suit the need of both the intelligence community and the public. They hoped to direct the supercomputing revolution from the start in order to make sense of what millions of human beings did inside the digital information network. That collaboration has made a comprehensive public-private mass surveillance state possible today. End quote. After the September 11th attacks enabled autocrats in Washington to pass the Patriot Act, the biggest beneficiaries have been Silicon Valley tech companies, particularly Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, who have partnered with federal intelligence agencies to mine data and profit from the war on terror by at least $44 billion since 2001. According to a 2021 report by Action Center on Race and Economy, the Patriot Act passage, the report says, opened the door for big tech to become, first and foremost, the brokers of our personal data, selling it to secret agencies and private companies at home and abroad, unleashing the era of the digital economy. In 2006, Google acquired YouTube from PayPal mafiosos Steve Chen and Chad Hurley, further consolidating the big tech platforms, controlling the digital flow of information. The globalist cabal intended to get the planet hooked on digital information, but to also consolidate the providers of digital content to a handful of companies which are controlled by the intelligence agencies. These mega corporations are run by leaders who have been compromised, most often by blackmailing them during acts of child rape. However, their plan got seriously derailed when Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential race. Now, whether you think Trump is Christ reincarnated, Satan himself, or somewhere in between, it is undeniable that the establishment threw everything they could at him to give Hillary Clinton the win. And yet, they failed. Many of the elites blamed talk show host Alec Jones for Trump's victory. Again, regardless of your feelings about Jones, his show Infowars received approximately 30 million daily viewers before his mass deplatforming in 2018. So when the globalists started to tighten the screws of censorship to ensure no populist president could ever win again, Jones was first on the chopping block. On August 5th, 2018, Apple removed several Alex Jones-affiliated podcasts from iTunes. Over the next 48 hours, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, MailChimp, the radio broadcaster Stitcher, and even Pinterest followed suit. Twitter, under Jack Dorsey's leadership, eventually followed suit, and in September 2018, PayPal also dropped Infowars. Jones was recently reinstated on Twitter, now X, under Elon Musk's ownership. Much to the cabal's chagrin. 
in the following interview with Tucker Carlson, another major media personality who has faced the wrath of the establishment. Jones discusses what happened and why the globalists hate him so much. This is a global movement by the mega corporations, by the Black Rocks and the state streets and the vanguards that control 80 plus percent of world wealth uh, to control our behavior. And Larry Fink of BlackRock has said that at the Davos Group repeatedly. We're going to use our control over all this finance and this global social credit score we're rolling out to control people's behavior. So, so that's really what this is. And then they use uh, the threat of global warming. They use the threat of a virus. They use the threat of radical Islam to take our rights. But we really are the target. Even if I, it, by the way, none of that seems implausible at this point. I mean, just you're a measure of how the world has changed. If you'd said this to me 15 years ago, I'd have been like, you know, someone's a crackpot and it's not me. And now after COVID, I don't, nothing you said seems crazy at all. I mean, you may be right, you may be wrong, but it's not out of the realm of possibility, obviously. But even if I disagree with what you just said, I would think that's pretty interesting. It's an interesting perspective. Why do you think you've committed no crime? You'd be in jail if you had. Why do you think they hate you so much? Because I do read their documents and I do read their books. And we were effectively getting a lot of people in the military and the intelligence agencies who were compartmentalized and who tuned into my show and, and, and saw my films and, and, and read my books and things. And they clicked with it and said, wow, I see all this going on around me. He's not lying about it. And then I would give them other pieces that I discovered or my other guests had discovered. And so it was giving them an operational awareness outside of their compartmentalization. And so we had massive uh, success in the military, in the police, and in the intelligence agencies, not just here, but around the world. And, and, and so our penetration into those areas to, to help people expand their awareness that were inside the government, inside corporations, was triggering a lot of whistleblowers, was triggering a lot of people not going along with the program. And so really my sin was decompartmentalization of the population. When you got deplatformed, and it, to this day, no one has ever been more aggressively censored, I don't think, than you. Um, I've apologized to you this in person before. I was in Labrador on a fishing trip and missed the entire thing. I was literally out of cell range. Um, I didn't know what happened, but I got back and I, was sh and I read about it. I felt like it was a major moment in the history of the American media. I don't think anybody defended you when that happened. Anybody with any kind of audience. For me, when Tim Cook admitted that he met on the weekend in, in August of 2017 with the other big tech heads and they made the decision to curate like it's a museum and, and, and take me off. It was hundreds of platforms. I mean, it wasn't just all the big ones. It was everything from LinkedIn to our bank accounts being taken away uh, to everything ensuing that week and over the next month. And I knew that I was a test case and, and I wasn't taken uh, you know, off those platforms for any demonstrable reason. It was the uh, questioning the school shooting thing that came later. They went and kind of dredged that up from my past, just questioning it a few times, blew that up after I'd been deplatformed and said I was deplatformed for that. But if you check the record, I wasn't. Uh, and, and, and so once they deplatformed me, it, it made the show in ways only get bigger with people actually going to Infowars.com and finding me on local radio stations and things. So then they panicked and said, okay, let's look at his record and create more of a reason that he's being taken off. So they took things out of context from five, six years before, blew them up as a current thing out of context and deceptively reported on what I'd said to create a straw man argument to then facilitate the reason. In Jones's first ex-space since being reinstated, 
former Navy intelligence agent Jack Posobiec emphasized the significance of Jones's deplatforming in the establishment of the censorship industrial complex. I was with uh, President Trump last night uh, in New York. We had a huge gala dinner, and and we talked about the importance of this next election and how it really plays into the censorship and the, these ideas of what the what the ability of the distribution channels of truth are. And so whether or not you have someone who has an opinion on, oh, okay, I'm a Trump supporter, I'm not a Trump supporter, I'm an Alex Jones supporter, I'm not an Alex Jones supporter, I'm pro-Ukraine, I'm pro-Russia, I'm pro-Israel, I'm pro-Gaza, whichever it is, if you don't have one central hub, as Alex has said, that's allowing for these ideas and allowing for this information to be disseminated, and you've got people that decide that they can put their finger on the trigger and take out somebody like Alex Jones, who was the first one to do this. I mean, Alex, I was with you the day that this happened down there in Congress. That was the picture I posted of the two of us, because this has been the problem since really 2018. And if Trump hadn't, because people need to remember what the internet was like before Trump won the election. It really was when Trump won the election, because you had the head of Google go up there and say on election night in an internal meeting, and Alan Bakari at Breitbart has the video on this, said, we will not let this happen again. Big Tech said, we will not let a populist uprising take over and put a candidate in office, right? Left or right, they said they will choose from now on. And that's when the censorship industrial complex began. So prior to Alex Jones's just really public execution in terms of the digital square, it was a digital public execution that we saw prior to that the idea that people were getting suspended on Twitter, you know, Twitter 1.0 or even Facebook or YouTube or any of these things, it was ridiculous. You, ha- you had to either, you know, really, you know, seriously violate terms of service, uh, death threats, doxing. That was pretty much it. That was pretty much the only thing or like actually hacking the system was the only thing that get you out. But when they did that to Alex Jones, it fundamentally changed the way that we operate on social media and the way that we share information. I'll now share segments from that 2016 internal Google meeting following Trump's election. While the Google executives did not explicitly say, we will not let this happen again, as Posobiec alleged, they may as well have. Again, your personal political affiliation is irrelevant here. What matters is that enabling a handful of tech oligarchs to control the flow of information in support of their desired candidate is incredibly dangerous and fundamentally degrades democracy. The following comments come from Sergey Brin, Google's co-founder, Kent Walker, Senior VP for Global Affairs, Ruth Porat, CFO, and Eileen Naughton, VP of People's Operations. Okay, folks. I know this is probably not the most joyous uh, TJF we have had. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, let's face it, most uh, people here are uh, pretty upset and pretty sad for uh, because of the election, you know myself um, uh, as an immigrant and a refugee, um, I, I certainly find this election uh, deeply offensive, and I know many of you do too. Um, and and I think it's a very stressful time, uh, and it uh, conflicts with many of our values. Um, I think it's uh, it's a good time to reflect on that, and uh, you know we're gonna uh, hopefully uh, share some thoughts uh, today. All politics is local, goes the old phrase. And if you're in Pennsylvania or Birmingham, you may not care that somebody 
in Delhi is getting a new job or that somebody in Jakarta is getting better health care. You care about what's happened to you and your family. And you're seeing this sense of stagnation, that you're not better off than your parents, and you're afraid that you, your kids might not be better off than you are. And what's the path forward? And the forces out there are seem well beyond you. Globalization, immigration, trade, whatever. And you're afraid, and you're trying to look for answers. And that fear, I think, not just in the United States, but around the world, is what's fueling concerns, xenophobia, hatred, uh, and a desire for, for answers that may or may not be there. I want to take you back to um, 8.30 p.m. on Tuesday night. I was at home with friends and family watching the election returns. And uh, as we started to see the direction of the voting, I reached out to someone close to me who was at the Javits Center where the big celebration was supposed to occur in New York City, somebody who had been working on the campaign. And um, I just sent him a note and said, are, you know, are you okay? It looks like it's going the wrong way. And I got back a very sad short text um, that read, people are leaving, staff is crying, we're going to lose. Uh, that was the first moment I really felt like we were going to lose. And it was this massive like kick in the gut that we were going to lose. And it was really painful. So yesterday, Eileen um, and I had a, a town hall for some of our orgs. And um, I suggested that what we all need right now is a hug. So everybody, if you could turn around or go to the person next to you <laughs> and do a hug, it works. <laughs> I Over to Eileen. The second question is around internal mobility. Can I move to Canada? <laughs> now, one could guesstimate that at least 50% of Americans are interested in moving to Canada right now. <laughs> and that might mean maybe at least 50% of Googlers might be interested in moving to Canada. Uh, Toronto and uh, Waterloo can't handle us all, I'm afraid. But look, we move people at Google all the time. I just moved here to California six, seven weeks ago. Um, we moved 8,900 people in the last 12 months. We expect we'll be moving well more than 10,000 next year. So we care about your talent development and mobility independent of this election. So uh, for those of you interested, you know, pay attention. We do move people around. And, and you know, we really we have the most amazing collection of talent in any corporation in our space, we are not going to lose talent for uh, lack of comfort staying in, in this country. So, Here, I'll throw up my theory here. Uh, I think everybody's presuming that some of these folks left behind are, you know, specifically the people who voted for Trump. I don't think the data quite supports that. I mean, I know there's the kind of geographic, roughly speaking, spread, but in fact, Hillary won the low-income vote. In fact, people under $100,000 support Hillary and over 100,000 support Trump. Um, I actually looked at the data, you know, fairly carefully, and um, uh, I think the the biggest relationship was whether people had really routine jobs um, in a, in an area, and that correlated highly 
uh, with Trump support versus having non-routine jobs. And there's actually a lot of historical precedent for boredom being a huge factor in vote uh, choice um, and actually in building extremism. In fact, we've had a lot of work on uh, Jigsaw on uh, extremism um, that's, uh, um, that shows high correlation to simple boredom. Yeah, and I further, I think it's worth really worrying about. I think, you know, and there's, you know, data that suggests that boredom led to the rise of fascism and also to the communist revolution. I mean, there were many other factors, too. Um, but, uh, you know, it sort of sneaks up uh, sometimes, you know, really bad things. So I think it's, it's worth being very vigilant and thinking about all these issues. What can we do to lead to maybe a better quality of governance, decision-making, and so forth. How exactly did Bryn intend to ensure that these bored fascists never again got to decide the leader of the United States? Does he instead prefer a world where AI determines the results of our elections? Where we don't even need elected leaders because the machines can make all of our decisions for us? That would be batshit fucking crazy, right? Well, here's Bryn a few months after Trump's election talking with WEF leader Klaus Schwab in Davos, Switzerland. I think when you, you know, ask these kinds of questions about the future, what does it mean to be human in the future? Um, what, what does it mean to be an individual versus society? Kind of where are we going in the long term? I mean, these are deep and powerful and fundamental philosophical questions, yeah. but I don't know that we are equipped to answer them. I think it's premature because yeah. we don't know yet how the technology will uh, look like. Uh, but one, one fear which I have heard is that technology now is, and uh, digital technologies mainly have an analytical power. Now we go into a predictive power, and we have seen the first examples, and your company very much involved into it. But since the next step could be in, to go into a prescriptive uh, mode, which means um, uh, you you do not even have to have elections anymore because you can already uh, predict what uh, predict, and afterwards you can say why do we need elections? Because we know what the result will be. Can you imagine such a world? Um, well, you might then further ask, well, why do we need to have you know elected leaders at all? Yeah, because yeah, you yeah. might as well have all the decisions made. Yeah. Um, I think that's, once again, I mean, you're venturing into, I think, profound questions. Seriously, what the fuck? I think I need a hug after hearing these oligarchs conspiring to give my right to self-governance over to Big Brother. Students of history may be familiar with German pastor Martin Niemöller's poem about the Holocaust. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. If we extrapolate this sentiment to today, we can say, first they came for Alex Jones, and I did not speak out because I was not a conspiracy theorist. Then they came for Donald Trump, and I did not speak out because I was not a Republican. Then they came for the healthcare professionals who challenged the COVID-19 narrative in response. Big tech's brazen censorship under the leadership of companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter accelerated during the pandemic. 
Per RFK Jr., Google has a long history of suppressing information that challenges vaccine industry profits. Google's parent company, Alphabet, owns several vaccine companies, including Verily, as well as Vaxitech, a company banking on flu, prostate cancer, and COVID vaccines. Alphabet invests heavily in vaccine manufacturing, including a $715 million partnership with GlaxoSmithKline. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit and the country was forced to lock down under the leadership of unelected bureaucrat Dr. Tony Fauci, quote, business closures pulverized Americans' middle class and engineered the largest upward transfer of wealth in human history. In 2020, workers lost $3.7 trillion, while billionaires gained $3.9 trillion. Some 493 individuals became new billionaires, and an additional 8 million Americans dropped below the poverty line. The biggest winners were the robber barons, the very companies that were cheerleading Dr. Fauci's lockdowns and censoring his critics. Big technology, big data, big telecom, big finance, big media behemoths, Michael Bloomberg, Rupert Murdoch, Viacom, and Disney, and Silicon Valley internet titans like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Eric Schmidt, Sergey Brin, Larry Page, Larry Ellison, and Jack Dorsey. CEO Satya Nadella boasted that Microsoft, by working with the CDC and the Gates-funded Johns Hopkins Center for Biosecurity, had used the COVID pandemic to achieve two years of digital transformation in two months. Microsoft Teams users ballooned to 200 million meeting participants in a single day, averaged more than 75 million active users compared to 20 million users in November 2019, and the company's stock value skyrocketed. Larry Ellison's company Oracle, which partnered with the CIA to build new cloud services, won the contract to process all CDC vaccination data. Ellison's wealth increased by $34 billion in 2020, Mark Zuckerberg's grew by $35 billion, Google's Sergey Brin by $41 billion, Jeff Bezos by $86 billion, Bill Gates by $22 billion, and Michael Bloomberg by nearly $7 billion. End quote. As I'll discuss shortly regarding the Twitter files, we've come to learn that the intelligence agencies played a massive, insidious role in censoring healthcare professionals throughout the pandemic. Again, I want to emphasize that the globalist censorship movement is not and has never been directed just at one man, Trump, or on the MAGA movement. It is against those individuals who defend our right to self-governance against kleptocracy. Here's former Democratic presidential candidate and defender of self-governance, Tulsi Gabbard, testifying to Congress about how Google's censorship interfered with her 2020 primary campaign. The threat big tech monopolies pose to our democracy is real and serious. I've had personal experience with this. After the first Democratic primary presidential debate in 2019, I was the most searched candidate of the night. Unfortunately and suddenly, my Google Ads account was mysteriously suspended without any notice or explanation. There were no responses to our multiple attempts to resolve whatever problem could have caused this, but after some time passed, magically, my account was reinstated, again, with no explanation or apology. But their actions limited my ability to connect with voters who were actively seeking more information about my candidacy and why I was offering to serve them as president and commander-in-chief. This has not only happened to me, it's happened to other candidates running for various offices. Joe Kent running for Congress in Washington State is one I know personally of. This happens all the time with these big tech monopolies interfering in our democracy by manipulating search results based on whatever it is that they want the American people to know about a particular candidate or issue that should be concerning to any one of us and all of us. Why are the leaders of Google 
including co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin, and former CEO-slash-chairman Eric Schmidt, a member of the Bilderberg Group Trilateral Commission and Council on Foreign Relations, why do they go along with this depraved globalist agenda? Is it simply for wealth, power, and fame? Or is there something even more sinister going on? Like the other tech oligarchs discussed in this essay, all roads lead back to Jeffrey Epstein. According to a lawsuit filed late last year by the U.S. Virgin Islands against big banking giant J.P. Morgan, Epstein introduced J.P. Morgan honcho Jez Staley to Google co-founders Brennan Page in 2003. By 2011, the sex trafficker was considered the biggest revenue producer for J.P. Morgan's private bank and was known as the advisor to the Google founders. Per Kate Bricolet and Katie Baker of the Daily Beast, quote, Bryn's relationship with the private bank brought in more than $4 billion, one memorandum states. Epstein also referred ultra-wealthy clients to J.P. Morgan, including billionaires Glenn Dubin, Bill Gates, Leon Black, Mort Zuckerman, and Thomas Pritzker, the USVI says. The legal filing says other Epstein referrals included Gates' confidant Boris Nikolic, ex-Harvard President Larry Summers, Britain's Prince Andrew, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, UK politician Lord Peter Mandelson, former White House advisor David Gergen, and the Sultan of Dubai, who is likely businessman Sultan Ahmed bin Suleim. Epstein was too big to fail, the USVI notes in a memorandum filed, adding that J.P. Morgan continued working with Epstein up until his 2019 arrest for trafficking minors. Epstein was a J.P. Morgan client from around 1998 to 2013, when he was ousted for years' worth of suspicious cash withdrawals and damning new reports on his sexual abuse. The USBI argues in a lawsuit that J.P. Morgan functioned as the financial arm of Epstein's sex ring and instead of stopping the abuse, enjoyed a profit bonanza through his connections. End quote. Jez Staley would go on to become CEO of big baking giant Barclays until he resigned in 2021 due to his Epstein ties. J.P. Morgan continues to be run by Jamie Diamond, whose Epstein ties date back decades. The USBI lawyer argues that Diamond knew in, in 2008 that his billionaire client Jeffrey Epstein was a sex trafficker. In May of 2023, big banking giant Deutsche Bank settled $75 million for a lawsuit brought by a Jeffrey Epstein victim who claimed that the bank had benefited from human trafficking by retaining Epstein as a client. As I highlighted in Who is Hillary Rodham Clinton?, Deutsche Bank former advisory board member Lynn Forrester Day Rothschild also has a decades-long history with Epstein. A month after her appointment to the advisory board, Deutsche Bank recruited Epstein as a client. Coincidentally, Lynn's late husband, Evelyn Day Rothschild, is a direct descendant of Meyer Amschel Rothschild, one of the founding members of the Illuminati, and the Rothschild family is considered to be one of, if not the single most powerful, elite crime families running the deep state cabal. Elites including Sergey Brin and Larry Page were subsequently subpoenaed as part of the USVIV Epstein case. However, government investigators have been unable to locate Larry Page, who is sought by the court, and have asked Judge Jed Rakoff for permission to serve Alphabet instead. Weird how the mainstream media hasn't covered this, right? How is it that Jeffrey Epstein gained access to these Silicon Valley titans? How did he extend his influence, blackmail, and child trafficking network to gain leverage over these elites? Two words. Edge Foundation. Edge Foundation and Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein, with the help of his madam, Ghislaine Maxwell, and a network of human trafficking criminals, built possibly the most insidious blackmail operation in history. As I've covered in past episodes, Epstein was a known asset of intelligence, including the CIA and Mossad. 
Epstein's operation extended into big tech from the early days of Silicon Valley. Here's Whitney Webb discussing how Epstein's tentacles penetrated big tech. Chapter 20 Epstein, Edge, and Big Tech Epstein's Edge One of Epstein's main entries into elite circles of scientific academia, and specifically big tech, was through the Edge Group, an exclusive organization of intellectuals redefining who and what we are, that was created by John Brockman. Brockman, a self-described cultural impresario and noted literary agent, is best known for his deep ties to the art world in the late 1960s, though lesser known are his various management consulting gigs for the Pentagon and White House during that same period. Edge, which The Guardian once called the world's smartest website, is an exclusive online symposium affiliated with what Brockman calls the Third Culture. According to an entry on Edge's website written by Brockman, the third culture consists of scientists and other thinkers who are taking the place of the traditional intellectual in rendering visible the deeper meaning of our lives, redefining who and what we are, as well as those who have tremendous influence on the emerging communication revolution surrounding the growth of the Internet and the Web. Emerging out of the third culture, Brockman writes, is a new natural philosophy founded on the realization of the import of complexity of evolution. Regarding Edge's membership, Brockman openly acknowledged to The Guardian that Edge was elitist, but added that he meant elitist in the good sense of an open elite based on meritocracy. However, the validity of Edge's meritocracy is debatable, given Epstein's long presence in the Edge community. When asked why Edge's membership was so exclusive and elite, Brockman stated the following. The problem with a discussion that uses the word elites is that the word is automatically perceived as a pejorative, but that's not how I feel about it at all. Elites are a problem if they're closed and exclusive. Elites that are open, inclusive, and based on merit can be nurturing. Also, members of elites give one another permission to be great. Brockman has long hobnobbed with the elite since his early career, when he was already a master of serving up New York Bohemia in a palatable way for investors and businessmen. Brockman began hosting an annual event, originally dubbed the Millionaire's Dinner, in 1985, which matched some of the biggest names in big tech with potential benefactors. According to Brockman, Major partnerships and deals in the tech world were being made at the event, stating that, in the beginning, it was very consequential, there was heavy stuff going down, alliances coming and going about browsers. However, once people had their jets parked outside, meaning Silicon Valley leadership had become more showy with their quickly growing wealth, it got upgraded to the billionaire's dinner. Brockman and the intelligence-linked Epstein became closely connected around this time. In 1995, Brockman was the literary agent of physicist Murray Gelman and had originally sold Gelman's book, The Quark and the Jaguar, to Bantam for $550,000. Gelman only managed to produce a partial manuscript, which Bantam rejected. Brockman scrambled to try and resell the book, 
which he eventually did to W. H. Freeman for $50,000. While these sums are considerable alone, additional financing for the book was provided by Epstein. Gelman's book thanks Epstein for his financial support. Given the subsequent and close relationship between Epstein and Brockman slash Edge, it is highly likely that Epstein's support of Gelman, at a time when the future of his book hung in the balance, had been arranged between Brockman and Epstein. That year, Brockman also released his treatise on the Third Culture and founded what was called the Reality Club soon after with physicist Heinz Pagels. Pagels died a year later in 1996, and their reality club then became known as Edge. Three years later, in 1999, Brockman's Edge officially rebranded the Millionaire's Dinner to the Billionaire's Dinner, though it was formally known as the Edge Annual Dinner. The Edge website describes the dinner as offering an opportunity for conversation between the leading third-culture intellectuals of our time the majority of whom are often Brockman's clients, as well as the founders of Amazon, AOL, eBay, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, PayPal, SpaceX, Skype, and Twitter. Edge asserts that it is this remarkable gathering of outstanding minds who are rewriting our global culture. In writing about the dinner on the Edge website, Brockman divides many of its attendees into two categories first mentioned by physicist Freeman Dyson, the computer wizards, the tech billionaires who dominate Silicon Valley's most successful companies, and the biology wizards, scientists and thinkers whom Brockman refers to as a new generation of artists, writing genomes as fluently as Blake and Byron wrote verses. As an active member of EDGE, Jeffrey Epstein, beginning around the time Bill Clinton left office and picking up considerably after his first arrest, courted and financed and potentially blackmailed both varieties of Edge's wizards. Epstein's ties to Edge and to Brockman are considerable, with Epstein having funded $638,000 out of a total of $857,000 donations raised by Edge from 2001 to 2017. During this period, there were several years where Epstein was Edge's only donor. Epstein stopped giving in 2015, and that was incidentally the same year that Edge decided to discontinue its annual billionaire's dinner tradition. In addition, the only award Edge has ever given out, the $100,000 Edge of Computation Prize, was awarded once in 2005 to quantum computing pioneer David Deutsch and was funded entirely by Epstein. While he bankrolled Edge and Brockman, Epstein was photographed at the first and second billionaire's dinner in 1999 and 2000 and was mentioned in a published summary of the 2004 dinner. BuzzFeed reported in 2019 that Epstein also attended Edge events after his first arrest and as recently as 2011. Epstein is likely to have been present at several other billionaires' dinners because his accomplice and Ghislaine Maxwell's then-assistant, Sarah Kellen, was photographed with Brockman at the Edge's billionaires' dinner in 2002 and again in 2003 at Edge's science dinner, which replaced the billionaires' dinner that year alongside John Brockman's son, Max. 
On the heels of the first billionaire's dinner and just before he began heavily funding Edge, Jeffrey Epstein created the Jeffrey Epstein VI Foundation in 2000, which would be the main vehicle for his science-focused philanthropy that would lead him to fund prominent individual scientists and develop close ties with leading academic institutions, specifically MIT and Harvard. Most of those scientists were also clients of Brockman, as well as members of the EDGE community. In addition, several individuals mentioned in this chapter in connection with Epstein, Nathan Mervold, Linda Stone, Joey Ito, Esther Dyson, and Bill Gates, were all members of the EDGE Foundation community, EDGE.org website, alongside several other Silicon Valley icons. Since the Epstein scandal, Regular attendees of the billionaire's dinner, i.e. the Edge annual dinner, have referred to the event as an influence operation. If one follows the money, it appears it was an influence operation largely benefiting one man, Jeffrey Epstein, and his network. While this does not mean that everyone involved with Edge or with Brockman was targeted by Epstein, it certainly gave him the network and the cover to target and cultivate specific, prominent figures in Silicon Valley and in academia, and it should be considered a key component of Epstein's broader influence operations during this period. Indeed, it may have been through Edge that Epstein gained privileged access to the elite of big tech. Before his 2019 arrest, Epstein had attempted to rebrand as a tech investor-slash-entrepreneur. Indeed, in the lead-up to his most recent arrest, Jeffrey Epstein appeared to have been attempting to rebrand as a tech investor, as he had done interviews with several journalists about technology investing in the months before he was hit with federal sex trafficking charges. Similarly, after Epstein's first arrest, Ghislaine Maxwell began also schmoozing key networks in Silicon Valley, as seen by her attendance at the 2011 holiday party of Silicon Valley venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins. Around this same time, Epstein had also told journalist James Stewart that he had potentially damaging or embarrassing information on Silicon Valley's elite and told Stewart that these top figures in the American tech industry were hedonistic and regular users of recreational drugs. Epstein also told Stewart that he had witnessed prominent tech figures taking drugs and arranging for sex, and claimed to know details about their supposed sexual proclivities. Whether through Edge or another avenue, there is a strong case to be made that Epstein had blackmail on powerful Silicon Valley figures. Though it is unknown exactly which Silicon Valley figures were most connected to Epstein and which tech executives were potentially being blackmailed by him, it is known that Epstein associated with several prominent tech executives, including founders of big tech's most important firms such as Google, Tesla-SpaceX, Microsoft, and Facebook. For instance, in 2019, Epstein claimed to be advising Tesla and Elon Musk, who had been previously photographed with Epstein's alleged madam, Ghislaine Maxwell. Epstein had also attended a dinner hosted by LinkedIn's Reid Hoffman, where Musk had allegedly introduced Epstein to Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook slash Meta. Google's Sergey Brin is known to have attended a dinner hosted by Epstein at his New York residence, 
where Donald Trump was also in attendance. In addition, Ghislaine Maxwell was reportedly close to Amazon's Jeff Bezos, who she referred to as her pal, and who invited Maxwell to exclusive events he hosted. Several of these companies, whose founders had some Epstein-Maxwell connection, including Google, Microsoft, SpaceX, and Amazon, are also major contractors to the U.S. government, the military, and or the intelligence community. Around the same time, he began to cultivate the titans of big tech. Epstein's links to celebrity scientists also became obvious. In 2002, he flew cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, and philosopher of the mind Daniel Dennett to that year's TED conference. The trip in Epstein's private jet, which also included Brockman and his wife Katinka Matson was ritzy enough to receive a mention in the New York Times summary of the 2002 TED conference, which spoke of the mink and sable throws that adorned the plane as well as the group's high-altitude lunch catered by Le Cirque 2000. The article refers to Epstein as a financial advisor to billionaires. Some scientists that Epstein began to cultivate after the creation of his Jeffrey Epstein VI Foundation have courted controversy for their ties to eugenics or eugenicists. For instance, Epstein was a longtime patron of George Church, a Harvard geneticist who was also connected to Edge. Church has been accused of promoting eugenics as well as unethical human experimentation, such as using human women as surrogates for resurrected embryos of extinct species. In addition, another scientist allegedly funded by Epstein, Eric Lander, controversially praised James Watson, a geneticist and a notorious eugenicist who had stated his belief that people of African descent have genetically inferior intelligence on numerous occasions prior to Lander's complimentary statements. Epstein's own interest in eugenics was the subject of several mainstream reports after his death. In the early 2000s, around the same time he began to court these top celebrity scientists, including Church, Epstein began to tell friends and scientists that he wanted to impregnate 20 women at a time at his Zorro Ranch property. Some prominent scientists later told the New York Times that Epstein's social events and outings may have been an opportunity for Epstein to screen attractive women with impressive academic credentials as potential mothers for his children. Using the Zorro property, Epstein reportedly sought to seed the human race with his DNA due to his interest in controlled breeding and eugenics. Some Epstein accusers, like Virginia Giuffre, have alleged that Epstein and Maxwell had asked her to serve as a surrogate for what they said would be their child. In addition, another victim who testified under the name Carolyn, see Chapter 18, reported seeing pictures of Ghislaine Maxwell nude and pregnant. It is unknown what became of the pregnancy, but Epstein's apparent interest in impregnating women with his DNA, as well as his interest in genetics and eugenics, suggest that these episodes, as well as his ambitions at the Zorro Ranch property, deserve greater scrutiny. I've gone through the Edge Foundation's website and highlighted a subsection of 101 of its contributing members who have ties to big tech, big media, elitist organizations, and or intelligence agencies. 
At the very least, we need every member of EDGE to be investigated to understand what went on at these gatherings. Members include Marina Abramovich, artist, author, walk through walls, a memoir, and spirit cooking aficionado. Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft. Christopher Anderson, curator of TED conferences and TED Talks. Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon, owner of the Washington Post, founder of Blue Origin. Sergey Brin, co-founder and director of special projects for Google. Steve Case, chairman and CEO of Revolution LLC, co-founder of AOL. Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist. Ari Emanuel, talent agent, co-founder of Endeavor Talent Agency, brother of Barack Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel. Tony Fidel, computer engineer, founder and CEO of Nest, father of Apple's iPod. Bill Gates, co-founder and former CEO, Microsoft. Yuval Noah Harari, professor, Department of History, Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and author of Sapiens. Sam Harris, neuroscientist, philosopher, and author. Ariana Huffington, chair, president, editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post Media Group. Walter Isaacson, president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, author of Steve Jobs and Einstein. Salar Kamengar, Google, former CEO, YouTube. Marissa Meyer, CEO of Yahoo. Chad Meredith Hurley, founder of YouTube. Elon Musk, CEO and CTO of SpaceX. CEO, head of product design at Tesla. Larry Page, Google's founding CEO. Sean Parker, co-founder of Napster, founding president of Facebook. Alvy Ray Smith, co-founder of Pixar. Louis Rossetto, editor and publisher of Wired and Hotwired co-founder and CEO of Wired Ventures, Jacob Safra, chairman of Encyclopedia Britannica, Larry Sanger, co-founder of Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales, founder and chair of the Board of Trustees of the Wikimedia Foundation, Evan Williams, CEO of Medium, co-founder of Twitter, and Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple Computer. In addition to these Edge contributors, I've pulled a selection of photographs from all of the billionaire dinners between 1999 and 2015. Additional household names seen in attendance include Jeffrey Katzenberg, co-founder of DreamWorks, Martha Stewart, Jim Wyatt, former chairman of William Morris Agency, WME, Rupert Murdoch, chairman and CEO of News Corp, Eric Schmidt, former CEO and chairman of Google, Matt Groening, creator of The Simpsons, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO and founder of Facebook, Epstein recruiter slash groomer Sarah Kellen, whose photos were subsequently deleted, and Jeffrey Epstein himself. Here's John Paul Rice, Hollywood film producer, disclosing the criminality of Hollywood and its relationship to Edge and Epstein's blackmail enterprise. I'm an independent film producer. I've been in Hollywood for about 20 years. I started my film career and remember the Titans. Uh, worked at Senator International, later Mandate Pictures, under the producers who did Juno, The Grudge, Harold and Kumar, Stranger Than Fiction, and uh, eventually The Hunger Games when they went back into Lionsgate. This is a bigger problem because most people know in that world, and the world that I come from in Hollywood, that it is a hidden layer that everybody knows is there. When the Me Too movement started, in 2017, I reached out to several of my female actress friends who were prominent in LA. You would know them by name. Many of them you would know by just their look because you go, oh, that was her in that movie or that movie. And I said, well, what about the children? What about the children? 
And they and the response was, we know, we know. But they were silent on it. And it destroyed me because it destroyed my illusion of what rights, human rights were, children's rights were. This is a child abuse system that we have been living in for a very long time and it's been allowed to go on. And I will not be silent about this because it affects every single one of us. The people on television who smile at you, who tell you stories, who give you news, are the ones who hide all of this from us. They are not talking about the real issues. They are distracting you with division issues. This is a unification issue. And it doesn't matter what side of the political equation you're on on this. This is a child issue. This is a human issue. This is not a political issue. It has nothing to do with left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, liberal versus conservative, or anything you are or you identify with as in between. We are faced with a crisis of consciousness among the leadership of our banking institutions, of our media corporations, of the Hollywood entertainment industry, of the music industry. This is not about a bunch of young women who were having sex with older men and make it about a bunch of perverts. They raped and tortured these girls against their own free will, no matter whether they paid them or not, if you read the articles and you listen to what Ghislaine Maxwell said about the girls that she picked up in West Palm Beach's trailer parks, she was asked, what about the young girls? What are we going to do to them? What, what's going to happen to them? She said, they are trash. They are nothing. That's a direct quote from The New Yorker. When I went and looked at edge.org, which you can find out was a multi-billionaire club of people that was financed by Jeffrey Epstein, you can go to edge.org today, look up under people and go to G. You'll see Bill Gates on there as a contributing member of that organization. And you'd have to go back in the Wayback Machine and Internet Archives to look at all the other people. Jeffrey Epstein was right on there. Marina Abramovich is on there. Paul Allen was on there. All the heads of major industries were on there. And if you start reading some of the articles, there was a direct quote on there that said, indeed, human beings are in our youngest years, use the most among the most useless creatures in all of the animal kingdom. This is how they view children through science. This is their expression. These are people who have no ground to tell you what to think, what to do. So when they get up there and they start espousing their views on social justice or whatever the hell it is, know that you're hearing a controlled and scripted dialogue that is going through a filter by people who are very powerful, who hold a lot of money, and they are controlling and conditioning all of these people through pedophilia. And there's another layer to it, but it's too unbelievable to believe that they would also sacrifice kids. And I'll give you one statistic that you can look up and verify for yourself. If you go to UNICEF and you look up child sex trafficking or human trafficking, you'll find a statistic glo globally, worldwide, according to the United Nations, that 40 million people a year are trafficked around this world. 40 million. It's a $150 billion a year industry for which has very dark and ugly ties. 
and it goes all the way up into Wall Street and beyond. But I will say this, 5.5 million children every year are trafficked around the world. 5.5 million, most of whom don't live past age seven or eight, which means they have to replenish that supply chain. We harvest, they harvest organs of children on a black market. These people don't give a shit about anybody and they get up there and they smile in front of you and they are in, infiltrated throughout all of our institutions, including government. They own the politicians, right and left. What we are gonna find out very soon is that there aren't Democrats and Republicans in the United States government. There's a unified cabal of controlled people who serve these powers and they keep the theater going for you and I to run back and forth and vote every four years. Maybe these edge billionaire dinners were completely benevolent, a place for technologists and scientists to network and discuss the future, a better future for our children, the useless creatures of the animal kingdom. But also, maybe they were used to give Jeffrey Epstein clout and connections within big tech, individuals he could subsequently entrap in his blackmail enterprise. Maybe they involved honeypots in which these elites were compromised on film and lewd sexual acts with minors. Maybe some of these blackmailed individuals are also involved in even more sinister activities, including the ritualistic rape, torture, and murder of children. This last point may still sound like ludicrous conspiracy theory nonsense. Unfortunately, it's not. As I covered extensively in Who is Hillary Rodham Clinton, in 2016, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks released John Podesta's personal emails shortly before the presidential election. The ensuing Pizzagate scandal woke up millions around the planet, exposing the involvement of elite politicians, celebrities, and business executives in pedophilia, human trafficking, and satanic ritualistic abuse networks. A scandal which, unlike the propaganda promoted by the Mockingbird media, is very real and has never been debunked. What was the response of the national security state to Assange's exposure of their war crimes and crimes against humanity? The response to free press and true journalism, not shills controlled by the oligarchs in the Bilderberg Group and the Council on Foreign Relations? The response was to murder him. Senior intelligence officials in the Trump administration, like CIA Director Mike Pompeo, went so far as to request sketches or options for how to assassinate him. Discussions over kidnapping or killing Assange occurred at the highest levels of the Trump administration, said a former senior counterintelligence official. There seemed to be no boundaries. The agency's plans also included extensive spying on WikiLeaks associates, sowing discord among the group's members, and stealing their electronic devices. At a certain point, we have to acknowledge this uncomfortable, inconvenient, but common-sense truth. The people who protect pedophiles and human traffickers are themselves pedophiles and human traffickers. Does it therefore come as any surprise that President Biden's current CIA director, William Burns, himself had at least three scheduled meetings with Jeffrey Epstein while serving as Deputy Secretary of State? How deep does the depravity of the national security state go? Perhaps the clearest evidence of the insidious ties between the secret police and big tech came as a result of the Twitter files release and the actions taken under the prior management of the social media giant now called X. Twitter slash X, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, and Disney. In March of 2006, 
Twitter was founded by Jack Dorsey, Noah Glass, Biz Stone, and Evan Williams, and by 2012, the platform's reach had grown to over 200 million active users. The company went public the following year. In 2016, Donald Trump's prominence on the platform and ability to connect directly with users, rather than through distribution channels controlled by the Mockingbird media, greatly contributed to his presidential win. As previously discussed, the platform, acting in coordination with the big tech oligopoly, banned Alex Jones in 2018 and continued to ramp up censorship heading into the 2020 election. One of the most egregious election-influencing examples of Twitter censorship came when it blocked posts from the New York Post regarding Hunter Biden's laptop from hell. The story, published just one month before the election, revealed how Hunter Biden had introduced a Ukrainian businessman to his father, Joe Biden, serving under Obama as vice president at the time. The meeting took place less than a year before Vice President Biden pressured government officials in Ukraine into firing a prosecutor who was investigating the company Burisma, indicating a clear conflict of interest and likely corruption between the Biden family and foreign officials. The Post's primary Twitter account was locked as of 2.20 p.m. October 14, 2020, because its articles about the Biden laptop broke the social network's rules against distribution of hacked material, despite the lack of evidence the materials had been hacked. Two weeks later, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, and Google's Sundar Pichai testified in front of the Senate. Here's what Dorsey had to say about their decision to censor the post. The three witnesses we have before this committee today collectively pose, I believe, the single greatest threat to free speech in America and the greatest threat we have to free and fair elections. But today, I want to focus my questioning on Mr. Dorsey and on Twitter. Because of the three players before us, I think Twitter's conduct has by far been the most egregious. Mr. Dorsey, does Twitter have the ability to influence elections? No. You don't believe Twitter has any ability to influence elections? No, we are one part of a spectrum of communication channels that people have. So you're testifying to this committee right now that, that, that Twitter, when it silences people, when it censors people, when it blocks political speech, that has no impact on elections? People, people have choice of other communication channels with which- not if, not if they don't hear information. If you don't think you have the power to influence elections, why do you block anything? Uh, well, we have policies that are focused on making sure that more voices on the platform are possible. We see a lot of abuse and harassment, which ends up silencing people and having them leave from the platform. Why did Twitter make the decision to censor the New York Post? Uh, we had a hack materials policy. Um, that we when was that policy with, adopted? Uh, in 2018, I believe. In 2018, go ahead. What was, what, what was the policy? So the policy is around um, limiting the spread of materials uh, that are hacked. Um, we didn't want Twitter to be a distributor for hack materials. Um, we found that the New York Post, because it showed the direct materials, screenshots of the direct materials, and it was unclear how those were attained, that it felt that it fell under this policy. Now, we- so in your view, if it's unclear the source of, uh, of a document, and in this instance, the New York Post documented what it said the source was, which it said it was a, uh, a laptop owned by Hunter Biden that had been turned into a re- re- repair store. So they weren't hiding what they claimed to be the source. Is it, Our, is it your position that Twitter, when you can't tell the source, blocks, blocks press stories? No, not at all. 
Um, we, our, our team made a fast decision. Uh, the enforcement action, however, of blocking URLs, both in tweets and uh, in DM, in direct messages, we believe was incorrect. And we changed it. Today, right now, the New York Post is still blocked from tweeting two weeks later. Yes, they have to log into their account, which they can do at this minute, delete the original tweet, which fell under our original enforcement actions, and they can tweet the exact same material and the exact same article, and it would go through. So, Mr. Dorsey, your ability is you have the power to force a media outlet. Let's be clear. The New York Post isn't just some random guy tweeting. The New York Post has the fourth highest circulation of any newspaper in America. The New York Post is over 200 years old. The New York Post was founded by Alexander Hamilton. And your position is that, that you can sit in Silicon Valley and demand of the media that you can tell them what stories they can publish and you can tell the American people what reporting they can hear. Is that right? No, this was, this was a, you know, every person, every account, uh, every uh, organization that signs up to Twitter agrees to a terms of service. A terms of service is So public. media outlets must genuflect and obey your dictates if they wish to be able to communicate with readers. Is that right? No, not at all. We, you know, we, we recognize an error in this policy and specifically the enforcement. Would you say that the political ideology of the employees of your com company is, you know, let's say 50-50, conservative versus... Uh, uh, liberal progressive, or do you think it's closer to 90% liberal, 10% conservative? We'll start with uh, Mr. Dorsey. Um, as you mentioned, I don't know the, the makeup of our employees because it's not something we ask or, or focus on. But be, I mean, just just what, what do you think off top of your head based on your chat rooms and kind of the people you talk to? Not, not something I look for or look yeah, right. The question was, does Twitter have the ability to influence elections? You said no. Do you, do you still stand by that that uh, that answer? Twitter as a company, no, no. We you don't. Just, you don't think you have the ability by by moderation policies by as Senator Lee would call, and I would call it censoring. You know what you do with the New York Post. You, you don't think that censorship, that moderation of policies. You don't think that influences elections by withholding what I believe is true information from the American public. You don't think that interferes in elections. Not, not our current moderation policies. Our current moderation policies are to protect the conversation and the integrity of the conversation around the elections. Okay, for both Mr. Zuckerberg and Dorsey, who who censored censored New York Post stories or throttled them back, do either one of you have any evidence that the New York Post story is part of Russian disinformation or that those emails aren't authentic? Do any of you have any? any information whatsoever, they're not authentic or that they are Russian disinformation? We Mr. Dorsey? We, we don't. You have no, so, so why, would, why would you censor it? Why did you prevent that from being disseminated on your platform that is supposed to be for the free expression of ideas and particularly true ideas? We believe to fell afoul of our hacking materials policy. Uh, we judged in the well, What evidence did you have that it was hacked? They, they weren't hacked. We, we judged in a moment that it looked like it was hacked materials. You were wrong. Surfacing, and, and we updated our policy and our enforcement within 24 hours. Three months later, Twitter, under Jack Dorsey's leadership, took the extreme and unprecedented action of permanently suspending the sitting U.S. president from the platform. The decision to remove President Trump was a result of the events that took place at the U.S. Capitol building on January 6th, 2021, with Twitter officials citing 
the risk of further incitement to violence. Now, depending on your perspective of reality and where you get your information, the events that day either represented A, an insurrection pre-planned by violent MAGA extremists, B, a protest turned riot due to bad actors in the crowd, or C, a false flag orchestrated by corrupt intelligence assets, including Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, to prevent Trump from ever again holding office. Regardless of where you stand on January 6th, there are a lot of persisting questions from that day that do not fit the official narrative. As it relates specifically to Twitter's actions, if they were concerned about the risk of further incitement to violence, then why did they censor the following video posted by President Trump that day? I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. But we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. Following the Republican president's deplatforming, critics of Dorsey and his successor, Parag Agarwal, alleged Twitter management ramped up its censorship and deplatforming of conservative voices. One such critic, who also happened to have huge financial resources at his disposal, was PayPal mafioso Elon Musk. On October 28, 2022, Elon Musk acquired Twitter for $44 billion, taking the company private. In the SEC filing announcing his intent to acquire Twitter, Musk stated, I invested in Twitter as a public company as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe, and I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. However, since making my investment, I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve the societal imperative in its current form. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company. Perhaps most importantly, following his acquisition, Musk worked with a team of independent journalists to disclose its censorship and its complicity with intelligence agents enabled by prior management. This was done through an investigative series known as the Twitter Files. In these shocking revelations, internal Twitter documents show that former intelligence agents were employed throughout the company, an issue which undoubtedly continues running rampant at other tech giants like Facebook, Google, and TikTok. The documents show old Twitter management colluded with intelligence agents in the months leading up to the 2020 presidential election to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story, which certainly impacted the results. They show that Twitter rigged the COVID-19 debate by first, censoring information that was true but inconvenient to U.S. government policy, second, by discrediting doctors and other experts who disagreed, and three, by suppressing ordinary users, including some sharing the CDC's own data. One of those independent journalists investigating the Twitter files was Matt Tybee. Tybee subsequently testified in front of Congress on March 9, 2023, to describe what they found. Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Plaskett, members of the Select Committee, thank you for having me today. My name is Matt Taibbi. I've been a reporter for 30 years uh, and a staunch advocate of the First Amendment. Much of that time was spent at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, ranking member Plaskett, um, I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the I.F. Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written 10 books, including four New York, Time, New York Times bestsellers. 
Uh, I'm now the editor of the online magazine Racket on the independent platform Substack. I'm here today because of a series of events that began late last year when I received a note from a source online. It read, are you interested in doing a deep dive into what censorship and manipulation was going on at Twitter? A week later, the first of what became known as the Twitter Files reports came out. To say these attracted intense public interest would be an understatement. My computer looked like a Vegas lot machine uh, as the, just the first tweet about the blockage of the Hunter Biden laptop story registered 143 million impressions and 30 million engagements. But it wasn't until a week after the first report, after Michael Schellenberger, Barry Weiss, and other researchers joined the search of the files, that we started to grasp the significance of this story. The original promise of the internet was that it might democratize the exchange of information globally. A free internet would overwhelm all attempts to control information flow, its very existence a threat to anti-democratic forms of government everywhere. What we found in the files was a sweeping effort to reverse that promise and use machine learning and other tools to turn the internet into an in instrument of censorship and social control. Unfortunately, our own government appears to be playing a lead role. We saw the first hints in communications between Twitter executives before the 2020 election. When we read things like, flagged by DHS, or please see attached report from FBI for potential misinformation. This would be attached to an Excel spreadsheet with a long list of names whose accounts were often suspended shortly after. Again, Ranking Member Plaskett, I would note that the evidence of Twitter government relationship includes lists of tens of thousands of names on both the left and right. The people affected include Trump supporters, but also left-leaning sites like Consortium and Truthout, the leftist South American channel Telesur, the Yellow Vest movement, that, in fact, is a key point of the Twitter files, that it's neither a left nor right issue. Following the trail of communications between Twitter and the federal government across tens of thousands of emails led to a series of revelations. Mr. Chairman, we summarized and submitted them to the committee in the form of a new Twitter files thread, which was also released to the public this morning. We learned Twitter, Facebook, Google, and other companies developed a formal system for taking in moderation requests from every corner of government, from the FBI, the DHS, the HHS, DOD, the Global Engagement Center at State, even the CIA. For every government agency scanning Twitter, there were perhaps 20 quasi-private entities doing the same thing, including Stanford's Election Integrity Partnership, NewsGuard, the Global Disinformation Index, and many others, many taxpayer-funded. A focus of this fast-growing network, as Mike noted, is making lists of people whose opinions, beliefs, associations, or sympathies are deemed misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation. That last term is just a euphemism for true but inconvenient. Undeniably, the making of such lists is a form of digital McCarthyism. Ordinary Americans are not just being reported to Twitter for deamplification or deplatforming, but to firms like PayPal, digital advertisers like Xander, and crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe. These companies can and do refuse service to law-abiding people and businesses whose only crime is falling afoul of a distant, faceless, unaccountable, algorithmic judge. As someone who grew up a traditional ACLU liberal, this mechanism for punishment and deprivation without due process is horrifying. Another troubling aspect is the role of the press, which should be the people's last line of defense in such cases. But instead of investigating these groups, journalists partnered with them. If Twitter declined to remove an account right away, government agencies and NGOs would call reporters for the New York Times, Washington Post, and other outlets, who in turn would call Twitter, demanding to know why action had not yet been taken. Effectively, news media became an arm of a state-sponsored thought policing system. I'm running out of time, so I'll just sum up and say, um, it's just not possible to instantly arrive at truth. It is, it is however, possible becoming uh, technologically uh, possible to instantly define and enforce a political consensus online, which I believe is what we're looking at. This is a grave threat to people of all political persuasions. 
the First Amendment and an American population accustomed to the right to speak is the best defense left against the censorship industrial complex. If the latter can knock over our first and most important constitutional guarantee, these groups will have no serious opponent left anywhere. If there's anything the Twitter files show, it's that we're in danger of losing this most precious right without which all democratic rights are impossible. Now, I've been extremely skeptical of Elon Musk, as I have of all billionaires with ties to Jeffrey Epstein. On Substack, I've included a photo of Elon Musk with Ghislaine Maxwell at the 2014 Vanity Fair Oscar party, along with Musk's response to the image. A spokeswoman for Musk told the New York Times, Ghislaine simply inserted herself behind him in a photo he was posing for without his knowledge. Further, given SpaceX has $100 million contracts with the Pentagon, he is certainly under NDA with the military-industrial complex and unable to disclose to the public the full, unadulterated truth. Yet with that said, every tree is known by its fruit. And while I won't hesitate to update my views on Musk if X's policies deteriorate, for the past year he has proven to be a staunch defender of free speech. He has reinstated conservative and other censored voices, while liberal voices have remained unobstructed. In this environment, information has flown freely, with an incredible quality and range of content available to the public. And for that, the Mockingbird establishment has set out to destroy him. In November, more than 200 advertisers, including Bob Iger's Disney, halted spending on X. This coordinated act from the establishment was allegedly done in response to a Media Matters report which claimed to find anti-Semitic content on X and highlighted advertisements for Apple, IBM, and other brands that appeared alongside posts touting Hitler and the Nazi party. Musk responded to Media Matters, an extremist far-left advocacy group funded by the DNC's largest donor and psychopath George Soros, by stating that they were an evil propaganda machine. Musk proceeded to sue them for fraudulently attacking X. Musk went on to tell all those who boycotted X over the Media Matters report not to return to the platform. Here he is in an epic interview with New York Times columnist and CNBC reporter Andrew Ross Sorkin, who, by crazy coincidence, happens to also be a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. There's a public perception that that was part of a apology tour, if you will. That this had been said online. There was all of the criticism. There was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger today. I hope today. they stop. You hope... Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go fuck yourself. But go fuck yourself. <laughs> is that clear? I, I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well let me ask you then, that's how I feel. Don't about, advertise. How do you think then about the economics of, of X? If, 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 if part of the underlying model, at least today, and maybe it needs to shift, maybe the answer is it needs to shift away from advertising. Um, if, if you believe that this is the one part of your business where you will be beholden to those who uh, have this view, G what do you do? F Y. I, I understand that, but there's a reality, too. <laughs> right? Yes. No, no. I, I mean, Linda no, Yaccarino's right here, and she's got to sell I, advertising. I, I, absolutely. So, um, no, no, totally. So, so no, no, actually, what, what this advertising boycott is, uh, is, is going to do, it's, it's going to kill the company. And do you think that the company... And the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company, and we will document it in great detail. But there are, those advertisers, I imagine, are going to say 
They're going to say, we didn't kill the company. Oh, yeah? They're going to say... Tell it to, tell it to Earth. But they're going to say, that, they're going to say, Elon, that you killed the company because you said these things and that they were inappropriate things and that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform, right? That's, that's and, what and they're going to say. And let's see how Earth responds to that. So let me, okay, this, then this goes back to... We'll, the, ma- we'll both make our cases. Right. And we'll see what the outcome is. What are the economics of that for you? I mean, you, you have enormous resources, so you can actually keep this company going for a very long time. Would you keep it going for a long time if there was no advertising? I mean, if the company fails because of an advertised boycott, it will fail because of an advertised boycott, and that will be what bankrupted the company, and that's what everybody on Earth will know. But what do you think, then, of the... I guess, this goes back to the idea of trust, though. Then it'll I, be gone. And it'll be gone because of an advertised boycott. But, but you recognize that some of those people are going to say that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform. And I, I, wonder, I just wonder and ask you, and think about that for a Tell second. Tell it to the judge. But the, but the judge is going to be... Uh, the judge is the public. And you think that the public is going to say that, that Disney is making a mistake? Yes. And they're going to boycott Disney? They already are. Well, there, there are some that are for, for, for lots of different reasons. But you think that this is going to... That you have the... This goes to actually the interesting of, of, of power and leverage. Let the chips fall where they may. Let the chips fall where they may. Can I ask why, why that is the approach? And I, I ask it because you've been What's very... What's the other approach? Well, you've been very particular about the, I mean, the approach to Tesla. Uh, when you think about the engineering involved in that, the approach to SpaceX, the approach to um, some of the stuff you're doing with, with AI has been very specific, Right. There's not a let, let the chips fall where they may approach to those businesses, I don't think. No, we focus on making the best products. And, and, and Tesla's gotten to where it's gotten with no advertising at all. I understand that. Tesla currently sells two, twice as much uh, in terms of electric vehicles as the rest of electric car makers in, in the United States combined. Tesla has done more to help the environment than uh, all other companies combined. It would be fair to say that, therefore, as a leader of the company, I've done more for the environment than everyone else, any single human on Earth. How do you feel about that? No, no, I, no how do I feel about that? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm asking you personally how you feel about that, because this goes, we're talking about power and influence and... I'm and saying, I'm saying what, I, what, what I care about is the, the reality of goodness, not the perception of it. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. Fuck them. Okay. Musk went on to call out Iger and Disney for boycotting X over Media Matters' fraudulent claims while continuing to advertise on Meta's platforms, despite Facebook and Instagram's enabling of child sexual abuse content and trafficking. The Wall Street Journal's coverage of the dark side of Meta's algorithms highlights Iger's hypocrisy perfectly. In their test of Instagram's reels, they were delivered streams of short videos showing risque footage of children, overtly sexual adult videos, and ads from big brands. One reel proceeded as follows. Six-second clip of an adult content creator uncrossing her legs to reveal her underwear. Six-second clip of a sprinter at a track meet running over a small boy who steps onto the track. 15 seconds ad for Disney promoting Disneyland's Coco-themed Plaza de la Familia. Back to the reel, a seven-second video of a young woman wearing lingerie and a furry tail posing with fake blood dripping from her mouth. A five-second video of a child in a bathing suit recording herself posing in a mirror. 
four seconds of an adult content creator giving a come hither motion in an eight second video of a girl twerking in a car while a song with sexual lyrics plays. Now, coincidentally, Twitter under its previous ownership had rampant child sexual abuse material, a problem which Musk and his team were able to fix within weeks. While over at Disney, the largest, most iconic producer of children's content in the world, we find that, coincidentally, the former president of Disney and co-founder of creative artists agency CAA, Michael Ovitz, was recently subpoenaed in the U.S. Virgin Islands v. Jeffrey Epstein case alongside Google's Larry Page and Sergey Brin. We also find that, coincidentally, Disney Cruises previously stopped at Jeffrey Epstein's Little St. James Island. And we find that Disney's sordid ties to pedophilia and satanic ritualistic abuse go much deeper than decent people could possibly imagine. Here's what CIA MKUltra survivor Kathy O'Brien, whose story I covered extensively in Who is Hillary Rodham Clinton?, had to say about her experience with Disney. The different places that were involved in MKUltra, one was Disney, and I was taken to Disney World in Florida. They have very sophisticated setup in the, the underground or the underworld of Disney World where um, mind control programming occurs. Walt Disney's stories were intentionally crafted using his thorough understanding of occultism as he climbed the ranks of masonry and made connections which laid the foundations of the Disney empire. Through relations to CIA operatives Paul Helliwell and Wild Bill Donovan, Disney was able to secure land in Florida for a fraction of the valued price. Disneyland opened during the same year that Project Paperclip scientist Werner Von Braun worked as a technical director on Disney TV shows about space. Von Braun later became an expert on Walt Disney's Tomorrowland, an area of the park showcasing impressive futuristic structures. Located underneath the surface are tunnels or utility corridors, which can be accessed through certain unmarked doors located in various shops, restaurants, and attractions. It is in these utility corridors where child pornography, child trafficking, and mind control programming are allegedly taking place. Transcripts document the close relationship between Walt Disney and FBI Director Edgar Hoover as they correspond about how to bring the FBI's influence into children's TV shows such as the Mickey Mouse Club. These child stars, as well as the children viewing these programs, have been groomed and desensitized by sexual behavior. The correlation between Disney child stars and drug addiction crime, mental breakdowns, and dissociative behavior are merely products of the victimization they endured while being subject to Hollywood's elite producers and handlers. To quote former CIA operations officer Robert David Steele, who also served as Chief Justice for the International Tribunal on Natural Justice's Commission on Human Trafficking and Child Sex Abuse, The center of gravity for taking down the deep state. Pedophilia is both the induction glue. Pedophilia is how the deep state recruits and controls people. Uh, it is also the Achilles heel of the deep state. I believe that once the public realizes that the government is not protecting their children at a scale of vulnerability that we can articulate, then everything else about the government is called into question. All right. So for me, this is a truly 
righteous endeavor. And I will end by saying that as much good as it might do to get the British angry, for me, the center of gravity for change is the American public. Because if you can get the American public angry, we will stop supporting dictators overseas. We will close all of our military bases overseas. I am on record as a former CIA uh, operations officer is saying that our thousand bases overseas are not there for national defense. They're there to serve as lily pads for the smuggling of guns, gold, cash, drugs, and small children. So let me reiterate and expand on what Musk had to say at the DealBook Summit. Bob Iger, Michael Ovitz, Rupert Murdoch, and Michael Bloomberg, go fuck yourselves. Larry Fink, George Soros, and Klaus Schwab, go fuck yourselves. Jamie Dimon, Jez Staley, Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, Evelyn de Rothschild, and Jacob Rothschild, go fuck yourselves. Anderson Cooper, Rachel Maddow, Stephen Colbert, Sanjay Gupta, Leslie Stahl, Judy Woodruff, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and the other Mockingbird journalists shilling for these globalist criminals, go fuck yourselves. George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Barack Obama, John Podesta, Nancy Pelosi, Stacey Abrams, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and Nikki Haley, go fuck yourselves. Bill Gates, Paul Allen, Satya Nadella, Steve Ballmer, Rick Allen Jones, Tony Fauci, and Albert Borla, go fuck yourselves. Sergey Brin, Larry Page, Eric Schmidt, Ray Kurzweil, and Regina Dugan, go fuck yourselves. Reid Hoffman, Peter Thiel, Alex Karp, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and Jack Dorsey, go fuck yourselves. Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, John Brockman, Les Wexner, Marina Abramovich, and Sarah Kellen, go fuck yourselves. Henry Kissinger, Peter Schwartz, Nicholas Negroponte, John Poindexter, Alan Wade, Mike Pompeo, and William Burns, go fuck yourselves. Now with that said, I am not the judge and jury of the crimes these men and women have committed. The devil is in the details, which is why before humanity's emancipation from this globalist cabal is complete, we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to discern reality. It's important to also note that the CIA and other intelligence agencies have incredible tools of deception and manipulation. This includes advanced AI and deepfake videos. It also includes elaborate masks undetectable to the naked eye, which the CIA has had for decades. The mask is the culmination of a lot of work that we did at CIA over a period of, I'd say, 10 years developing that technology. It was a big challenge to come up with something that finally actually animated and worked to really fool a person closer than three, four feet from you. But we did. We actually brought Hollywood back into our labs at one point to look at what we had done, and they were stunned. They're absolutely stunned. The fact that we're allowed to show it tells me the CIA had moved on. I don't know what they're doing. I shouldn't know. I'm dying to know, but I don't know. So I'm proud to show people how good we got to that point and let them imagine. So what are they doing now? Jana Mendez retired from the CIA as chief of disguise after more than 25 years with the agency. When she left in 1993, the masks they were making could not be detected in a face-to-face -face conversation. These declassified photos show Mendez in disguise while meeting with President Bush in the early 90s. 
though she was there to brief the president on the new CIA disguise program, nobody in the room knew she was wearing a mask until she removed it. Imagine the advances that have been made in the last 30 years. Therefore, we must remain skeptical of what we're told while remaining open-minded to the unbelievable nature of reality. And we must recognize that there are always exceptions that prove the rules. Two examples of these exceptions are highlighted in the following conversation between David Sachs and Tucker Carlson. Sachs is a member of the PayPal Mafia who went on to found Yammer, then become a podcast host. Carlson was the former lead anchor at Fox News before being fired earlier this year, likely due to his defiance of the establishment narratives with his criticism of the Ukraine war and the COVID-19 vaccines. Both men now appear to be actively fighting on the side of humanity in support of self-governance and against globalist totalitarianism. I mean, we've talked in this conversation about how our public discourse is inane and self-destructive and divisive. I would add another word to that, which is controlled, you know, controlled. Um, a good example of this, I think, was just on the Ukraine war. David Arakamia, who is Zelensky's parliamentary leader, who was the lead negotiator for the Ukrainians at Istanbul in the first month of the war, when there was a deal on the table, he just testify, basically said in an interview, there was a deal on the table to shut the war down. We just would have had to agree to make Ukraine neutral. And of course, the Biden administration told them not to. This war is and has always been about NATO expansion. And yet, the party line from the media, even as all of these proof points stack up, I mean, we're now on like the 10th person, firsthand witness to say that this is what this war is all about. You still can't get the media to honestly report this. This is one example. Okay, and I I believe that this is one of the reasons why you were fired, Tucker, is because you were literally the only person on mainstream network news saying what the war is really about. So this is like one really big example is that we cannot get any truth on an issue as big as Ukraine war. So I guess my question for you is, like, how does control like that happen? Like, I, I don't really understand it myself. We live in a big what's supposed to be a big democracy. There's supposed to be you know, a lot of uh, media channels, but yet they all enforce a certain narrative on pretty much every issue. But even, you know, again, I'm picking on, I think, one of the biggest issues right now, which is this war we've got going on. I mean, how does that happen? I don't, I don't understand it. How do they maintain that control? This is one of my personal concerns about technology and about progress of all kinds, which is you don't actually know where it's going. You don't. I mean, your best forecasts are, are very, mine have very often been wrong. And the, you know, of course, the promise of the internet was diversity and access to information from a lot of different sources, unfiltered information. You can talk to people in foreign countries for free. You know, every American will have an encyclopedia at his fingertips, and people are going to be much more informed, um, and no one will be able to control it because it's it's free and open. And, and the effect has been, you know, the opposite. There's less, I, I would argue, there's been uh, less freedom uh, in information than there was 30 years ago. How did that happen? I mean, that's, it's a very, comp I mean, you guys are much better situated to answer that question. Someone should think about that, I think. But the bottom line is, there are just not that many pipelines, actually. You know, in television, there were three big news channels, cable, you know, broadcast kind of receded in importance. It's mostly about prostate health now. And, um... So there are three big channels, two of them are on one side, one was on the other. And then there were the social media giants, but there are not that many of them. And they were all locked down and they were all riddled with intel 
in some cases, actual salaried Intel officers. Matt Taibbi's amazing reporting has shown this. Not just American either, from foreign countries. The whole thing was an op. It was insane. And, um, and you know, you could. I'm not going to beat up on Fox News, but there was a kind of a fairly narrow band of acceptable views allowed on that channel. Is that control? Yes, it is. And so there, was, there really was no remaining place with scale where someone with a dissenting view could give it voice. And that's just crazy. It's the opposite of what we were promised, but whatever, not to whine about it. But the existence of X, where anyone around the world, or in most countries anyway, can get for free a whole range of opinions that aren't controlled, that changes everything. Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter and conversion to X flung open the door to humanity's emancipation, and we must run through it. Because sometimes the legacy media outright lies, like they did when calling ivermectin a horse dewormer and in explaining the history of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. More often, they propagandize, misdirect, gaslight, vilify the heroes, and idolize the villains. Their most important weapon, however, is in what they don't cover. The stories left untold, the hangouts limited. And that is exactly why decentralized information threatens the establishment so much. You cannot understand the alternative narrative if you do not accept that there is one. But you don't have to take my word for it. Get informed, get skeptical, and get open-minded. There are many heroes standing up for self-governance by exercising their fundamental right to free speech. I don't agree with any of them completely and disagree profoundly with all about certain things but a growing group of informed, relentless individuals has sprung up as if by divine intervention to form an alternative media. Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Candace Owens, Dave Smith, Roseanne Barr, Aubrey Marcus, Russell Brand, Tucker Carlson, Theo Vaughn, Michael Schellenberger, Dom Luker, Glenn Greenwald, Sean Ryan, Kim Iverson, David Icke, Alex Jones, Laura Logan, Liz Crokin, Del Bigtree, Jimmy Dore, Matt Tybee, Whitney Webb, Mickey Willis, The All In Podcast, Tim Pool, and Luke Rudkowski, just to name a few. Their platforms are X, Rumble, Substack, Telegram, Signal, and Podcasts, and that's pretty much it, but it is enough. And their weapons? Righteous indignation and the spirit of Kshatriya. Kshatriya is a Sanskrit concept representative of the cosmic warrior. A true warrior is the light of invincibility, a protector. And as David defeated Goliath with a slingshot in his devotion to God, so too will we defeat this globalist cabal with free speech, an open press, independent thought, truth, and devotion to God. Communism destroys nations from the inside in four stages. First, demoralization in which agents infiltrate educational institutions and positions of authority as elitist organizations like the Bilderberg Group and CFR have done for decades. Through these agents and the use of propaganda, the younger generations are demoralized and internal division is sowed. Second, destabilization, in which these subverters and the demoralized generation destabilize democracy, including the rule of law, meritocracy, free speech, and fair elections. Third, crisis in which agents of authoritarianism abuse traumatic events to steal civil liberties from the public, as exemplified by Tony Fauci's actions during the pandemic. And fourth, normalization, in which society is socially engineered to accept this as the new normal. So the path to freedom and self-governance needs to invert their plans accordingly. First, moralization. 
Love yourself, love your family, love your neighbors, your friends, your enemies, and your country. From that foundation, we can address our problems with clear minds and open hearts. Second, stabilization. Be the stability in the chaos, the calm within the storm. Third, opportunity. Times of crisis also present times of great opportunity. So use the globalists' plans against them to build something better, a new future for humanity. Fourth, thrive. Remember who you truly are, the spiritual essence of divinity that transcends our material existence. With this strategy in mind, we can see through the hollow slogans of corrupted politicians and recognize which ones serve the shadow government, either directly or because they've been blackmailed. Then we can recognize the true patriots looking to protect our inalienable right to self-governance. True patriots including the likes of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Vivek Ramaswamy, Tulsi Gabbard, and yes, Donald J. Trump. We can remember the lessons of John Locke, who taught that sovereignty resides within the people, that our individuality and our universe is governed by natural rights, not the dictates of oligarchs. A philosophy which was expanded upon by America's founding fathers, men like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who understood that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And so, I'll leave you all with an appeal to your spirit of Kshatriya the cosmic warrior within all of us, and specifically an appeal to today's military-age men, the demographic responsible for bringing down all of history's tyrants. I refuse to let this be the end of America's noble experiment in self-governance, to be the generation that sleepwalks into a dystopian hell, and I hope that you will stand with me. This is absolutely not a call for violence, quite the opposite. It's a call for defense, Common sense, strength, and courage. The sooner we nip the globalists' plans in the bud, the more likely we are to avoid violent internal conflict and a thermonuclear World War III. I love this country in which I was blessed to be born, blemishes and all. The blood of the tribes of Israel flows through my veins from my father's side and the love of Christ from my mother's. So, if a group of transhumanist, child-murdering predators want to enslave this country, they're going to have to take it from my cold, dead hands. It's time to refuse the social engineering that is turning men into betas and driving women to hate men. That is used by the globalists to divide and to conquer. So, stop drinking the atrazine, the fluoride, and the glyphosate. Turn off the television, put down the booze, and rise, O Arjuna. And know that when you do, you will not be fighting alone. As much as I despise the corrupt leaders of our intelligence agencies, we must remember that the vast majority of men and women working within them are true, loyal patriots. That there are white hats within our military, intelligence, and law enforcement community fighting to destroy the deep state from within, to protect our right to self-governance for generations to come. As a civilian, I am proud to recognize these brave warriors 
and to lend my pen and my microphone and join in their fight. The globalists have taken off their masks. We know their next move. In May of 2024, the United Nations member states will be voting on whether to amend the World Health Organization's international health regulations. As currently proposed, this treaty is effectively a coup which will enable the WHO, an unelected globalist organization funded by Bill Gates et al., to take over sovereignty from member states based on a health or climate crisis, which they unilaterally declare. Millions around the world have already stood up to this threat, led by heroes of self-governance like EU Member of Parliament Christine Anderson, and several countries have already rejected it. It's time the United States and the rest of the world do the same, hammering home the nail in the coffin of the globalist plot. Yogastha Kuru Karmani. Established in yoga, perform action. I am so very honored to be here with seven very brave citizens who came here today to launch an initiative for a European citizens' initiative, an initiative which will hopefully be accepted by the EU Commission, although I don't really hold my breath, to be quite frank, but I seriously hope we will uh, be able to do that. These seven citizens are so incredibly brave because they stand up against this despicable attempts by the globalitarian misanthropists to strip us of freedom, democracy, and the rule of law. They simply say no to the attempts of granting an unelected body governing powers. They simply say no. And that's what we all should do, because this will end if we simply say no. And that's what we're here to do today. Because an unelected body like WHO, who is controlled and run by multi-billionaires, should never be allowed to act in place of a democratically elected government. Never, ever. In democracies, ladies and gentlemen, it is government of the people, by the people, for the people. And any government of anywhere in the world who disregards this fundamental principle of democracy by supporting this unprecedented power grab by WHO is an anti-democrat demonstrating nothing but his utter contempt for the people. And these seven brave citizens, they will not stand for this and neither will we. I will expose anyone, whether it's a member of a government in a member state or a government around the world or a member of parliament in the European member states or parliaments around the world who do not respect the people and do not respect democracy, I will see to it. They will be exposed, each and every one of them by name. Because guess what? There's elections coming up and the people might be interested in who is responsible for the abolition of democracy. So we are here today 
to tell you, WHO globalitarian misanthropists, we are here today to tell you, you picked this fight, you wanted this fight, well, guess what? You've got it. Let's fight. Because these brave citizens, my colleagues and I, we will not tire to fight you every step of the way. These brave seven citizens and millions and millions more around the world, these are the people you will have to reckon with from now on. Because we are millions, millions around the world. It is you that is the small French minority. You are the ones who do not have the right to dictate to the people what they want and what they don't want. So take it from me, take it from us, take it from these seven citizens who gathered here today, take it from the millions and millions of people around the world. We will bring you down and we will not tire until we have done just that. So brace yourselves. We are here and the fight is on. So let's have the fight. Let's commence with the fights. Why don't we? <laughs>